did I not see this coming? Well, hello there, Year of Polygamy listeners. Long time no talk. Welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I am your host, Lindsay. And I know, I know, I know it's been a long, long time since I have recorded an episode. You know what? I'm just going to be really honest and vulnerable and because I'm always that way on the podcast. I think that's why so many of you tune in. Because this podcast isn't just about the story of Mormon polygamy. It's about how uh, this girl right here decided to innocently study the topic and it's radically changed her life. And one of the ways that it has radically changed my life is... In the last uh, two years, I've gone through a divorce, and I I know that I've had Dallin on the podcast. You know, people might wonder why I would talk about that here. I'm not going to talk about that much because it's not enough in my rearview mirror yet to extrapolate any sort of wisdom from. I'm just sort of getting through it. It is by far the hardest thing I've done, but since I've, you know, had Dallin on here twice, I think we've had him talk about this. You know, Dallin is my ex-husband. And someone who is still very, very dear to me and will always be very dear to me uh, that I thought I would let you know. That's part of the reason why that's the main reason I haven't produced a lot of content. I am now a single mama. I am working two jobs. Um, So anyone that helped me out last year or gave a donation or still supported the podcast, you really did help me get through what was probably the most difficult year of my life. So thank you for that. And I'm sorry that it's taken so long. And and I think someday I and maybe Dallin and I both will be willing to talk about this and talk about how it fits into this whole thing because this, you know, it wasn't until probably, gosh, when I decided that I, you know, needed to separate that I realized, oh my gosh, I started this whole podcast about polygamy that has become wildly popular that's changed my life. I mean, we're getting 6 million annual downloads now. The majority of my listenership aren't even Mormons anymore. So thanks to all you Gentiles out there who are tuning in and like to listen to this crazy nonsense for whatever it's worth. I just had no idea. And I think I realized when I filed for legal separation at first, like, oh, no, this podcast was never about polygamy. This was about my own Mormon marriage. And isn't that how things are, right? Like we we just, uh, we have an issue and sometimes we let our mess spill out onto things that it probably shouldn't spill out onto. And fortunately and unfortunately for me, I let my own issues with the Mormon marriage system in general spill out onto fundamentalist communities, which is not something I would recommend doing. Uh, we should not take our pain and try to let others heal it for us, um, let other people's problems heal our trauma. But that's what I did. I didn't know that's what I was doing. And so I've spent a lot of time reflecting about that and reflecting on being more responsible in my impact. And there's something else I want to bring up that I'm really hesitant to. I actually recorded an episode on this and I got too emotional. So uh, I'm re-recording because I just, I'm not comfortable being that vulnerable about it right now. But since uh, this person has been a large part of this podcast, um, I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to talk about the suicide of my dear friend, Roy Jeffs. I have been accused by a few people who, you know, online who don't know me and don't know my situation and don't know Roy very well um, that think that, you know, maybe I or others used Roy for attention and and that perhaps that led to uh, his suicide. And and you have to know that Roy Jeffs, who's the son of Warren Jeffs, he um, 
he took his life in June of this year. So it's very, it's very fresh still. And I've been hesitant to talk about it because I don't want to exploit Roy and the criticism about using him for attention wouldn't hurt so much if it weren't based in some sort of truth. Um, when I first met Roy several years ago, we were just dumb. We just thought that, you know, the, the best, the best thing would be to get his story out. And, you know, I'd met him and he'd already been sort of trotted out to every news organization to tell his story. So when I met him, I, you know, I thought I was being responsible by telling him, Roy, when you, when you tell your story online, this is what happens. And, you know, I gave him some media literacy training and I thought I was being responsible. But I, what I didn't realize until later is that every time Roy told his story, it re-traumatized him. And every time he told his story, predatory people would come out of the woodwork. Um, sexually traumatized people would come out of the woodwork. And and once we knew that that was hurting Roy, we got him out of the the spotlight. But I think it was too late for him. I, I've said, I've talked about this in my grief on Facebook a little bit, but Roy survived the FLDS. He didn't survive his rescue. By the time I came into contact with him, Roy had already experienced a lot of traumatic events in um, his experience in being, you know, sort of out of the community and, and getting help out of the community. And man, there are so many stigmas involved with being the son of Warren Jeffs, I think that there were, were no redemptive paths for him. Um, he was labeled a rapist and a pedophile. And, and, you know, other people in his family have had similar labels because of their where their family comes from with very, very little understanding of the generational history of their family and, and sort of the experiences they went through. And Roy couldn't reconcile that identity and with the identity of his heart and who he wanted to be and what he thought that he was versus what other people thought he was. And I, I I won't say more about it other than it's caused me to radically pause and rethink. Uh, it's changed everything for me. Roy, I, I think I'm getting emotional again, <laughs> but I'm just going to say it. He was on the podcast and you know what? Maybe it is true that we put him out too much. Maybe he told his story too much. But if that's so, then then I'm going to take accountability here. I'm going to take accountability publicly for my role in that. If I would have known how much it hurt Roy to tell his story, I would have never interviewed him on the podcast. I've contemplated taking his, his episode down, but I don't think he would have wanted that. Um, Roy became such a close friend of mine. Our family sort of took him in, and he ended up spending several nights a week with us and coming over for dinner. And when I moved to my new place, Roy helped me move in. <laughs> he actually um, helped hang all the pictures in my wall, on my walls. And we have this like temporary wallpaper that he helped me put up one night and it was really fun. And um, he came over one night and we were up late and I cooked him dinner. And then he, you know, was telling me about his whole he he was out in the dating world and experiencing that and we were just laughing and joking and he was hanging up this wallpaper and he stepped on my couch and he broke my couch in half and he felt so bad about that and it's it's just funny now because my my weeks are so empty he became such a part of my life and that's something i never anticipated with this podcast and I apologize. I already edited this. I, I, It's too close to me still. And someday I think 
maybe I'll talk about Roy's story in the way that he wanted he wanted me to help him. He wanted me to talk about the the perils of his rescue and the challenges that he experienced in the outside world. And and I haven't been able to do that yet because I first want to look at my own uh, impact. It's not that I believe that anyone is responsible for someone's death. And I certainly, I certainly can't blame myself. But what I am forever sad about is that the help that is out there for people like Roy and people in these communities and ex-Mormons from all across the spectrum is, is it's completely insufficient. It's incomplete. We ask people to uh, amputate part of their identity. We still have the script that's very binary that you stay or you leave the church and those are your options. And I always, you know, Roy was very integral in helping shift my work at Sunstone. Um, that I still continue to do this idea of what more than one way to Mormon was inspired by Roy Jeffs <laughs> because I saw him grappling on the outside with, with this idea, this premise that we all signed up for that I signed up for, which was that it's so much better. It's so much better for him to be out of the FLDS. Roy, aren't you glad you're away from that? where you came from was so terrible and awful and ugly and gross. Doesn't it feel so good to be free from that? And it didn't. He struggled. He didn't know how to make sense of this world. And because of the stigmas and the narratives that we have of where he came from, he was never able to develop an identity that allowed him just to be who he was. And it's like we asked him to amputate his arm and then bleed out and say, be whole. And I see that with so many in the Mormon community. And I apologize to all the Gentiles listening to this, but this is a struggle. I'm in the thick of it every day, not just with the podcast, but with all the work that I do with fundamentalist groups, with Sunstone. I've had a really dark few years because I'm in the upside down. I get to see the shadow sides of this faith that I have loved so much. And what we do is we ask people to leave it, to walk away from it. And I've decided that the ugly truth is you can leave Mormonism, but it doesn't leave you. Not completely. You can get away from it. You can set good boundaries. You can move on. You can get distance. And if you can do that, that is great. I am not in a place where I can do that um, right now. Roy was certainly not in a place where he could do that. And it's that battle inside that I think tore him up. There has to be a better path. Uh, and that's more than one way to Mormon was sort of my attempt to rescue Roy. To give people a place where they could claim their identity and their heritage as messed up as it is. And as we're going to talk about in the podcast today, Mormonism is a hard, violent thing. It wounds us. But it's who we are. It, it shaped us and made us who we are. And I really feel like for us to heal, we have to contend with that. Now, of course, all these thoughts are still developing and I'm still grieving what you learn about grief 
it's so interesting. You know, I've the last six funerals I've been to have been suicides. And I'm so angry because I <laughs> I only ever love this faith. And you can tell that I have. I started a podcast that has swallowed, consumed my life. It's cost me a lot. I think I've been trying to redeem Mormonism. But you can't redeem Mormonism. But we have to let the people be redeemed. Else what are we supposed to do? And, you know, I'm just tired of burying my friends. I'm tired of the homophobia in my culture, and my community. Uh, you know, Roy was was just learning about his own sexuality and, the, and him being a Jeff's. The ex-FLDS hated him and the FLDS hated him and the Mormons hated him. And gosh, there's just a kid that just needed love. What's so strange is, even though I've lost so many friends to suicide, so many Mormons are dying, there's there's so many suicides happening in Short Creek. I mean, in the summer, we were averaging one a week. And, you know, lots of good is happening. We're, we're developing the suicide task force and all of that. But it's so strange that Roy's death has really, really caused me to reflect. And so I don't know what the future of the content of this podcast will be, you know, in my grief, I've decided like at one point I was just going to take it all down. Maybe there was harm in telling people's stories. Roy certainly couldn't get away from his. But I mean to say is I'm just shocked when you grieve. It's so interesting because now I, I'm sitting in this, this place, this beautiful place that's my own that represents freedom and independence and autonomy and all these things. And every morning, it's like your brain forgets. You wake up and you, I see these pictures and, and the first thing I think of is Roy. That's what's so deceptive about grief is you always remember them as a life first. I always look at the pictures or the wallpaper that he put up and I think, oh, Roy did that. And then right after, immediately after, you remember he's dead. And Nat Kelly, who's a blogger uh, at Feminist Warren Housewives with me, she, um, lost her mom recently. She was writing about this too. And she's so eloquent all the time. And she said, when you lose a loved one, they die every day for you. And that's what it feels like. And that's what it feels like with Roy. And so perhaps it's inappropriate of me to talk about him here. Perhaps, you know, my critics are right. The people that are angry at me are right that I used him for attention. And I want you to know that I'm really paying attention to that. So consider this accountability. Um, it's not a call for sympathy. Because the reality is, there's nothing I could do now that could bring him back. So anyway, uh... <laughs> I'm still too close to it. This is this is why I haven't podcasted for so long. I don't think it's really responsible of me to be so vulnerable while I'm grieving, but I hope you'll forgive me. So many of you have gone down this journey. I've been quite open on the podcast. It would be wrong of me to get on here and tell people's stories in such an intimate way and not do the same. When people share their lives and their identity, it impacts them. It impacts how they see themselves and others see themselves. And perhaps that's why I'm so vulnerable too, as an act of accountability. Because I'm not going to ask people 
something that I wouldn't ask myself. But if you're going to use anything from this information, don't don't use Roy's death for any agenda other than to fight for love and inclusivity and to release judgment. There is still so much divide amongst our groups, amongst Mormonism, amongst outsiders and insiders. It's this black and white thinking that is harming us all. We need to attack systems, not people. And all of the intersections, all of the oppression that are hurting and wounding marginalized people, we need to be responsible for and look at our part in it. And that is the takeaway that I think I would ask um, from this experience. I think Roy had other other things that he wanted, other goals, and we hope to accomplish some of those for him. But, man, I just wish he could be there to accomplish them himself. So with all of that, um, now we're going to talk about gruesome murders on the frontier. Isn't that so appropriate? Uh, actually, I will tell you, you know, I've been working, I've sort of just retreated into the history. I've had a rough few years. And and with that, I, I need you to not feel sorry for me. It's been rough, but it's been so amazing. I have so many amazing people in my life. My family is so amazing. I have an incredible support system. My Mormon feminist sisters at Feminist Mormon Housewives still continue to sustain me. So many of you listeners I've developed relationships with and friendships with, and we go down to Short Creek, and Short Creek has become a refuge for me. Um, the Mussers and uh, some of the families down there, the the Barlows and the Jessops and the Chatwins and the Fishers and the Cooks, they've all become chosen family. And so there's so many beautiful things that have come out of some of this really, really hard work that I have experienced. And so it's amazing. But the history has also been a refuge for me. And so today we're going to, I mean, it feels so weird and probably inappropriate, but please, please give me space. I'm, I'm grieving. Um, so I reserve the right to be messy and to not always uh, choose wisely. Although I've taken a lot of time to reflect and I continue to do so. And when I'm wrong, I will say that I'm wrong. And when I'm doing harm, I will work hard to hold myself accountable and correct myself. And that's what I hope that we can all ask of ourselves. So the history has been a refuge and I have something kind of exciting is I've signed to do a few biographies for signature books. And one of them that I'm currently working on is a short uh, biography for Juanita Brooks, which is really cool because her and I... uh, are related. I, like Juanita Brooks, am also a Levitt, and it's been really exciting to study your history and dive into that. And so I've been like knee deep in, you know, Juanita Brooks's history, and I'm so excited for that. And that should be done next year. And I'm sure you're going to hear all about it. But it led me down all these rabbit holes, and some of them are really, really dark. And I think I think that one of the reasons why I connect with Juanita Brooks is she had such an affection for her Mormon identity. And I mean, it's so clear. She, her autobiography is basically a love letter to Mormonism. She had such an affection. And yet because of that, it is because of her deep, deeply held love for her community that she 
wanted to hold it accountable and sort of bring the shadow stuff into the light. And I, I deeply resonate with that. And so she talked about the hard things. She walked in the shadow world. She wrote the history of Mountain Meadows Massacre. Our shared ancestor, Dudley Levitt, was a major participant. It was her grandfather. And she tried to follow truth where she found it, like any good Mormon is supposed to do, right? And so I'm going down these rabbit holes in the shadow side, feeling less alone when I'm walking with Juanita. And I just sort of got off on this tangent. Uh, It's a long story, but basically, if you follow my Facebook, you can see that I've been covering uh, a few stories of really like heinous murders on the frontier. And I know that sounds dark, and it is dark. Like, just to be clear, if you're listening to this episode today, if you've got kids in the room, we're going to talk about some graphic violence. And maybe that's not for you, especially considering the context of this. But I have to say that to me, it it helps. It's It actually makes me feel better. And it's not a misery loves company sort of thing. It's more that, gosh, the pain and suffering that I have to wade through every day in these communities. You guys, I'm not kidding. In my job, because of the work that I do, I hear the worst of Mormonism all the time. It's a gosh darn miracle that I can talk positively about Mormonism at all because people come to me with their pain. And and the sad thing is they think that I can help them, right? And, you know, I can point people to as many resources as possible. But at the end of the day, this is a system that has done a lot of damage. And it's also done a lot of good. It's brought a lot of beautiful people into my life and the lives of others. But learning the history, especially the gruesome parts, helps me understand how we got here, why some of the attitudes and the things are the way that they are. And that's what the history does for me. It sort of it sort of explains and shines light on and gives me more data and information on the current suffering that exists today. And hopefully you'll be able to hear those in the stories today, because what I'm going to do is we're going to talk about something pretty gruesome, but I think are pretty interesting. Uh, they're what I'm going to call revenge killings. Or if you're George A. Smith, old Mormon apostle, he'd call them mountain law, mountain common law. But these questions, like on at first blush, they just seem, you know, the story of revenge killings. Basically, uh, you know, someone has an affair with someone's wife and the husband goes and murders him, you know, for revenge. There's there's stories sort of like that. And at first blush, it seems like jealousy or possession or things like that. But actually, in these stories, and in, in the particular stories that I find, I think that they ask a lot of interesting questions. And I've come across many stories. And again, you can see some of them on my Facebook. But the ones that I chose today, I think, ask really, really interesting questions about Mormonism, about polygamy, because these all have a polygamy intersection. The ones that I chose, there, there were a lot of instances of revenge killings. And the majority of them that I found involved women and plural wives. But there are some that involved daughters. Um, I think that it asked questions about purity culture and chastity and things like that. But I'll let you see what questions and intersections you can find. But gosh, I think that there are a lot of interesting things to consider. So before we get going, uh, I want to remind you of a story that I talked about because I think that this is a good story to set us off. I've talked about it before. It's one of my favorite stories in Mormon history. It's the murder of Parley P. Pratt. So as a refresher, if you don't know who Parley P. Pratt is, he was one of the original members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles in the Mormon Church, and he is brutally murdered in Arkansas in 1857. And his murder is super important because 
He is murdered in Arkansas in May of 1857. In September of 1857, some immigrants traveling from Arkansas come through Utah and are murdered in the Mountain Meadows Massacre. The death of Parley P. Pratt plays into the rhetoric that sort of riled up uh, sympathy for those who massacred all these innocent immigrants, the Baker-Fancher party coming through Arkansas. And again, I to understand Mountain Meadows Massacre, you know, and Juanita Brooks, this is what she wrote about, you have to understand the murder of Parley P. Pratt because it happened in Arkansas. But if you remember the particulars, I'm just going to give you a really reductive rundown and I'm going to pepper this this episode with links so you can go down the rabbit hole as much as you'd like. But Parley P. Pratt is murdered on May 13th, 1857 in Crawford County by a man named Hector McLean. Now, what had happened was Parley P. Pratt was in San Francisco on a mission, returning from a mission from uh, the Pacific Mission for the Church, and he meets a woman named Eleanor McComb McLean, and he converts her to Mormonism. Her husband, Hector, says, no, no, no way, you're not going to join the Mormons, and she's like, yes, I am, and he says, no, you're not, and to prove a point, I'm going to send our kids to your parents in Louisiana because I don't want the kids to be taken by the Mormons. And here's the other thing that these stories will illustrate. If you haven't gotten the picture yet, people were terrified of the Mormons. I remember I watched Hell on Wheels, you know, that it's a TV show that you can watch. Uh, I think it's on Netflix right now. And it ha- it's about, you know, the history of the railroad in the United States. And there's like a season where Brigham Young is there and the Mormons. And they like portray the Mormons as super, super scary. And like Brigham Young is a mob boss. And I've talked to a lot of faithful Latter-day Saints. They're like, that's so weird. That's not how Mormons were. And I'm kind of like, yeah, it was. I mean, everybody was scared of the Mormons. As Will Bagley said, you have you have a group of several thousand people who leave the United States and declare war against the United States of like 4 million people at the time. I mean, that's a crazy thing to do. And then to come through the territory, people are being murdered. And not just the Baker-Fancher party, as, as we'll talk about in the story, a lot of people. It makes sense that Hector didn't want to lose his family to Mormonism. It also makes sense that she wanted to leave him. It was said that they had a violent dispute. She claimed that he was abusive. He likely he likely was. And so Parley P. Pratt basically sealed her as a plural wife. They decided to go back to Utah together. And she, Eleanor wanted to, she, le- she was determined to leave Hector. When she finds out he takes the kids, she decides to travel to New Orleans to get her children Parley Pratt and Eleanor decide that they're going to meet at Fort Smith and travel back to Utah together. And Hector McLean hears about this and decides to beat them to Arkansas, where he files charges against them and gets warrants for their arrest. He catches up with them in Indian Territory, which is now present-day Oklahoma, and takes the children away. And, you know, a marshal gets involved, and it's very, it's very fraught. But basically, long story short, Eleanor is sealed to Parley P. Pratt, Hector, in trying to get his children back and, you know, to get, I don't know, some sort of justice, murders Parley P. Pratt in Arkansas. And, of course, word travels back that a beloved apostle is killed. And to Mormons, this is just another instance of persecution, another instance of their leaders being murdered down in cold blood. Uh, It whips people up for months and months and months. Like I said, in May, this happens. And this just really codifies this idea that we can't trust outsiders. So I want you to keep that story in the back of your mind to see how 
how awful it was for Mormons to experience, you know, someone to be killed so brutally like this. You know, this woman in back in the frontier, I've read a lot of like apologist arguments on this, like because the story was the the Gentile story was that Parley P. Pratt stole another man's wife and he, you know, took vengeance for it. But in Parley's story, you know, she, he was abusive. The, uh, the fair Mormon article talks about how abusive Hector was and how that was justification. Parley was rescuing her and saving her. And, you know, you didn't get divorces back then because you just sort of abandoned people in the prairie. So it was completely unjustified. And for the record, I think it was unjustified. But just keep that in the back of your mind as I tell you about these next stories. And I want to acknowledge uh, some work done by Craig Foster, historian Craig Foster. We had him on earlier talking about fundamentalism, but he's also done a lot of work on extra legal cases, judicial cases involving polygamy in Utah and, and other things. And so he pointed me to a few really important cases about extra legal vigilante justice, if you will. And I've talked about a lot of them on Facebook. But here's, uh, here's the first one. It's an interesting and, quite frankly, a scandalous tale of murder, jealousy, and possession in Frontier, Utah. And it's the story of the murder of James Monroe in 1851. James Monroe was brutally murdered when it was discovered that Monroe had impregnated one of the plural wives of a man named Howard Egan. Now, Howard Egan was 24 years old when he married the 15-year-old Miss Tamson Parshley. That's such a Utah name. They would both convert to Mormonism, and eventually Howard would take on plural wives in Nauvoo. To take on plural wives in Nauvoo is a big deal, because that means you were part of the elite, and Howard was. He was a bodyguard to Joseph Smith. He was in the Nauvoo police force. He was part of a lot of the raids in Missouri and a lot of that stuff. He was he was OG. And he developed a really close kinship with the leadership in the Mormon church. And, and Joseph Smith once remarked, saying, quote, We never feared when Howard Egan was on guard, end quote. That means that Howard Egan was someone you could trust to uh, keep you safe. Also in Nauvoo during that time, while he's doing all of these things for the church, James Monroe is also there. And he is a clerk for Joseph Smith. He's also teaching school to Joseph Smith's children. And by all accounts, a good upstanding member of society. He would meet Tamson in Nauvoo, but, you know, they would strike up a friendship, but it was nothing big. And then Tamson, of course, along with Howard Egan and his other plural wives, moved to go out west to Utah. Uh, Tamson is left alone often as her husband is traveling, doing things for the church. She has several of her, her children. She gives birth to them while her husband is gone. And finally, I think he's gone for like 10 months uh, for a mission for the church. And she runs into James Monroe again, and they strike up a friendship. And I imagine in Townsend's defense, she was probably very lonely as someone who has been in this community working and talking about people's marriages for so long, not just polygamy, but in monogamy. You know, people get married for interesting reasons. Tamson and Howard Egan got married by their own free will and choice, but she was 15 when she got married. And you can imagine that now she's older and she has been lonely for a long time that James Monroe must have been exciting and a comfort to her. So they basically develop an affair and Tamson gets pregnant. So it gets a little difficult to hide this. So when Egan discovers that his plural wife has been impregnated by someone else, he decides to take justice into his own hands. Here is what Craig Foster writes, quote, Monroe wisely chose to get out of town before Egan's return from a prolonged journey to California. 
However, Egan followed Monroe and finally caught up with him close to the Utah border, where he shot and killed him. Egan was later brought to trial in which W.W. Phelps and George A. Smith served as his defense counsel. Okay, so, so what happens is Howard Egan hears about this. He decides to return from California. Monroe hears that Egan's coming back. He's like, I got to get out of the territory. So he's riding out and Howard Egan meets him, catches him down. It's said that basically Egan rides out to Monroe that, and the two have a little chat and they stop and Monroe says, you know, like, just let me go. And Egan says, nope, you have taken away my quote, peace of mind forever. You have 30 minutes to live. And uh, basically during those 30 minutes, Egan tells Monroe, you better get yourself good with God. You better repent. You better choose to change. And when the 30 minutes pass, uh, Egan takes a pistol out and uh, Monroe, who is unarmed, is shot in the face on the right side of the nose just below his eye. And he dies immediately. And Egan uh, calmly mounts his horse and rode up to the rest of the company that Monroe was with and gave them his name. And he said this, quote, Gentlemen, I have killed the seducer of my wife. He then put his hand to his breast and added, Vengeance is sweet to me. He told them that, quote, What he had done, he had done in the name of the Lord, that Monroe had ruined his family and destroyed his peace on earth forever. He then blessed the party, wished them a safe journey to the city, and rode off. And, you know, I was reading through Egan's family history, and it's really interesting because they do mention this, but it's it's very brief in what they say that he did this, quote, not for anger, but for justice. And they cited mountain law and mountain language as justification. Mountain law and mountain language starts to get really interesting. So I start looking into this. Now, when W.W. Phelps and George A. Smith, these were two leaders in the Mormon church, they serve as Egan's defense counsel. During the closing arguments, George A. Smith stated, quote, In this territory, it is a principle of mountain common law that no man can seduce the wife of another without endangering his own life, end quote. He then continued, quote, The principle, the only one that beats and throbs through the heart of this entire inhabitants of this territory is simply this, The man who seduces his neighbor's wife must die, and her nearest relative must kill him, end quote. Now, keep that in the back of your head, because this really is a precedent that is going to be a nice tradition in Utah for a while. And now that said, revenge killings aren't specific to Mormons, but plural wife revenge killings, you could argue, are. What is really fascinating, though, is this little uh, little tidbit. If we back up in the Nauvoo days of Egan's career, back to 1842, when he's back in Nauvoo, Egan is almost killed himself in Nauvoo under similar circumstances. Researcher Edward Hogan writes, quote, Several years earlier in 1842, Egan himself was almost killed in Nauvoo under similar circumstances. Ironically, the incident involved one of Monroe's aunts. So remember, James Monroe, who was murdered, his aunt Catherine, that's who we're talking about. Catherine, Zephaniah Clausen's widow. A superior had instructed Nauvoo officer John D. Lee. Remember, John D. Lee is the guy that was the fall guy for Mountain Meadows Massacre later on. A, a superior had instructed Nauvoo officer John D. Lee to take a few policemen with him and stake out Sister Clausen's house. 
So Egan, Howard Egan, remember the guy that revenge kills Monroe? Howard Egan is seen in Nauvoo visiting Mrs. Catherine Clausen, Monroe's aunt, almost every night at about 10 o'clock, not leaving until about daylight the next morning. Lee was told to knock Egan down and castrate him. Furthermore, Lee need not be too gentle with the man because everyone would be quite happy if Egan died. End quote. Now remember this idea of castration as a, a revenge, as vengeance for the Lord. This is not unique. You know, apologists will say it didn't happen, but we do have documented cases where it a- absolutely did. The cases of, I think I talked about this in, you know, the 1850s Southern Utah episodes where we have Bishop Warren Snow who castrated a boy that wanted to marry a woman that Snow wanted for one of his wives. And Porter Rockwell is said to have castrated a boy who was having an incestual relationship with his mother and they castrated pedophiles and they castrated boys that uh, they couldn't control. I think it was limited, but it absolutely did happen. And and if this account is true and uh, John D. Lee confirmed this account, he said that he was asked to castrate you know, Howard Egan for sneaking out with his sister Clausen every night. Let's go back to Edward Hogan. He writes, quote, Lee, however, had been instructed to report any unusual orders he received to Joseph Smith. Unable to find the prophet, Lee talked to Hiram, who told Lee that, that he had been inspired to bring this matter to him. Hiram told him that Egan was, in fact, married to Catherine Clausen. Moreover, their marriage was a holy one that had been performed in accordance with a a revelation given to Joseph Smith, which Hiram explained to him. Lee found the doctrine of plural marriage to be in accordance with his interpretation of the scriptures and immediately accepted it. Lee relayed Hiram's message to the chief of police and Egan remained undisturbed by the police. End quote. Okay, so if you're paying attention, what this means is Howard Egan, who murders James Monroe for sleeping with his plural wife, earlier in Nauvoo, was secretly married to Catherine Clausen, Monroe's aunt, and everybody thought that he was stepping around and having an affair. And of course, Emma Smith in 1842, polygamy was still super secret. It wouldn't become public for another 10 years. They're asking people to root out the vile perversions that are getting the Mormons in trouble, right? There are rumors that are that Mormons are practicing polygamy, and it's and it's causing all this persecution. And so the Nauvoo police are clearly trying to root out all of this injustice, and they target Howard Egan. And this is how John D. Lee learns about the principle of plural marriage when he goes to castrate Egan, who's actually sealed through the proper authority. Now, if you look at this, it's so interesting because this really highlights and amplifies the tension between polygamy and prostitution, polygamy and adultery, and how these narratives work. And depending on what side you choose depends on what side you are on the debate. Okay, so now Egan has turned himself in after murdering Monroe, after writing out, and W.W. Phelps is representing him, and George A. Smith is representing him. So how does it end? According to Hogan, quote, the jury needed only 15 minutes to render a verdict of not guilty. There is no indication whether the verdict was based on the jurisdiction question or because the jury found the defense attorney's appeal to, quote, mountain common law compelling. The reaction to the verdict printed in the desert news, however, probably reflected the feelings of most of the saints, including the jury. The news wrote that the jury's decision should, quote, prove a sufficient warning to all unchaste reprobates that they are not wanted in our community, end quote. Indeed, Monroe was demonized by the saints after his death. 
though even the most cursory reading of his diary shows him to be anything but a monster, end quote. Okay, so what's interesting is Howard Egan's family would go on to say that he uh, had a temper and it was something that he needed to work on. We do know that two of his plural wives divorce him. Tamsin ironically stays with him. She uh, has her baby. They name him after Monroe and Egan, and Howard Egan raises this boy as his own. There's no indication that uh, he was treated any differently, although, you know, who's to say? But if Howard Egan was abusive to Tamsin and she was going to run away with James Monroe, at, at the very least, she experienced wild neglect, which is abuse. It's interesting how that didn't factor into the sympathy of James Monroe rescuing her the same way it did with Parley P. Pratt, right? So I'll link to that. There's a lot more on that case you can read about if you'd like. The next one I'm going to talk about is um, a revenge killing, but I'm trying to deliberately choose stories that highlight different um, aspects, ask different questions so that I'm not, you know, confirming my own bias. There are several stories like Tamsin's where a woman was having an affair with someone, um, usually a plural wife, she's neglected, and of course the husband uh takes revenge or vengeance, whatever we want to call it. But this story is a little bit different, but it doesn't involve a plural wife. But this is very violent, and I'm going to give graphic language, graphic accounts, uh, firsthand accounts of the murder. So if you can handle that, great. If not, maybe skip forward 10 minutes. So we're going to be talking about a small farming community just a few miles northwest of Ogden, and it's called Marriott. And it was founded in 1850 by some families, uh, John and Moroni Marriott and Helen Henry Tracy. And um, it had been this nice little peaceful par- farming community where people had gone and felt a lot of refuge. In 1869, a man named William Butler moves from Kays Creek in Davis County to Marriott where he would settle with his family. It's said that Butler was like a big dude. He was like six feet tall, weighed 250 pounds. He was a farmer and freighter, but he did a lot for the community. Eventually, he would have five wives, over 30 children. And he was, you know, part of a lot of things. He was involved in the Utah War. He was one of the Minutemen that were under Lot Smith that, you know, came at Johnson's army when the federal government came in. They helped burn down the government supply wagons. He was also part of, you know, taking out apostates and the Morrisite War and all that stuff. So he had seen his fair share of violence. And apparently what had happened was, you know, in the 1860s, the railroad is coming in through Utah. That's what Hell on Wheels, that show, the TV show that I referenced earlier, talks about. And it takes some great liberties with fiction, which is too bad because the actual stories are so much better than uh, the real stories. There's a few of us that have been working on a screenplay with some really prominent writers about telling the, the history of the West. I don't know if anything will ever happen, but it might because the stories that, that are true are way better than the, than the fictional stories people try to write. But anyway, the railroad is here. They end up on Howard Butler's property laying some tracks through his property. And so that means that they have to put up with a lot of the railroad workers. And those railroad mining camps were hard places. There were a lot of hard men, a lot of men that couldn't get work elsewhere because they couldn't get along with people, um, you know, convicted felons. And they're just leaving the war and, and all of that. They're traumatized with a lot of PTSD and they're out here working on the railroad. So... They're on William Butler's land, and there's a man who's unidentified. He was French-Canadian descent, and he starts harassing one of William Butler's plural wives, his third wife named Ellen Close. 
He approached her a few times asking if he could buy some eggs. She said she didn't have eggs to sell. He later returned and forcefully tried to enter her home. And uh, that really freaked her out. So William Butler, you know, guarded the homestead for as much as he could until the railroad moved down a few miles. But that didn't stop the French Canadian. He kept harassing her. And eventually when Butler was gone, he came into the home. And he forced himself in. And so the Deseret Evening News reported that he came in and killed her. And sorry, he tried to force her. I don't know what that means. It's probably uh, he tried to sexually assault her. And he killed one of her children and severely wounded another. And then, you know, Butler comes home and rides down and kills him. And I'm going to read Butler's account. It's pretty gruesome. The day that the newspaper article appeared in the newspaper, uh, apparently this man's body was still where it had been slain. There was an inquest made and Butler was basically cleared of any criminal conduct. So this is what he says. So this man, you know, forces his way in and he goes for the hatchet on the dresser and Ellen's like, that's my hatchet, thinking it's her hatchet. So this is what Butler says, quote, my wife spoke to him and said, that's my hatchet, thinking he was about to steal it. He turned suddenly round and said, yes, damn you, I'll kill you with it too. He struck her while he was trying to get out of the house on top of the head with a hatchet laying it open. She continued to struggle with him. He also blackened both her eyes with his fists. The children ran to her assistance, but he still kept on with the hatchet, hewing them down as fast as they came within his reach. One girl about five years of age, Ruth Close Butler, he killed on the spot, and another girl, Ellen Close Butler, about seven years, got away. Not, however, until the miscreant had struck her twice, cutting her on the head. By this time, Tracy's women and my oldest girl came up. He threatened their lives also. The women screamed, which caused Tracy's boys, which were working in the meadow, to run to their assistance. With this murderer broke and ran, running towards the willows close to my house. Hearing the boys hollering out that he had murdered my wife and two children, I ran and headed the murderer and followed him up and caught him in the street in front of Tracy's house. I held him with one hand and beat him with the other till, at length, Tracy and his wife ran up with a club. She held the club and said, kill him, butler, at the same time trying to help me all she could. But Tracy stepped forward and dragged his wife away. I burst the back of his head with a rock, leaving a stream of blood behind him. I then followed him again right along the railroad track. Soon after, John Hudson came to my assistance on horseback with a revolver. He fired at him and missed, fired at him again and hit him in the hand. The Canadian wheeled and asked Hudson what he wanted to shoot him for, saying he had not done anything to him. Hudson said, damn you, stop. The man wheeled and began to run again. John Hudson fired and shot him in the shoulder, which stunned him and caused him to slacken his speed. By this time, we had gotten to the railroad bridge across the Ogden River. As soon as he got across the bridge, he jumped off. I ran onto him and clubbed him until I thought he was dead. He begged to let me die in peace. And then Butler went to get help. And then he re- he continues, quote, After we returned to the spot where I left the murderer, I, f- I found where he had been and dipped himself into the river and thrown off his coat in disguise, off his coat to disguise himself and left his coat where I had left him for dead. I asked the boys to help me pursue him again. They joined me and we corralled him near Farr's Mill Race in town. He got up and ran and I ran after him. He met with, he met me with a gun and I knocked him down with a club and beat his skull into atoms. By this time he uttered a prayer up, saying, Lord, have mercy on my soul. I stepped over to John Hudson, and he handed me his pistol, saying, 
make a sure shot. There's only one bullet in it. I went up to the man. He raised his head and gave a groan. When I shot him through his head at the side, the blood ran out of his mouth and bullet holes. Just after I sent the last bullet in him, I said to him, go to hell across lots, end quote. That's his account. After he kills this murder of his child, he goes to the Ogden authorities and he turns himself in. And they had already heard about the incident. You know, people had ran for help in Marriott. But he, neither him nor his neighbors were ever prosecuted for their actions. And I think that this is really interesting. I'm going to let Craig Foster, he has a brilliant article where he talks about this and I'm going to link to this. But he, he gives some context, which I think is really, really interesting. This is what Craig says, quote, This unfortunate incident is significant for several reasons. The first is on a personal level, perhaps emotional level. Although the residents of the Marriott community had certainly been witnesses to and, in some circumstances, even victims to acts of violence, such incidents had never reached so close to home. Furthermore, the attack upon one of Butler's plural wives represented the type of societal and cultural change that was taking place in the Utah landscape. While bringing fast and easy transportation as well as the possibility of less expensive goods and increased wealth, the railroad also introduced the possibility of increased contact with the outside world. This attack showed that outside contact could also bring in negative and undesirable events, elements. The murder had a deep impact upon the psyche of the close-knit community. Some members became more suspicious of outsiders, and others lived in fear that something of that nature would happen again. In a very real sense, an aspect of innocence was taken from the Marriott settlement that spring day. Descendants of Rose Marriott, first wife of Moroni Marriott, and neighbors of Ellen Close Butler remembered that, quote, This horrible affair was a shock to the whole community and made Rose afraid to be alone the rest of her life. The Butler murder and the subsequent hunting down and killing of the perpetrator are also significant for another reason. Although certainly not an everyday event, the response of the community was not uncommon at the time in the western United States. Indeed, some communities, in some communities, extra-legal punishment by a family member against a perpetrator of attempted accomplished seduction or rape was justified and supported. And then Foster mentions cases like the wife of an Ogden man named Wolverton. Wolverton's wife was raped by some transient, and the, quote, transient was caught and found guilty. He received a a 15-year sentence, and as he was being taken to prison, he was shot five times by Wolverton. Wolverton was then arrested and put on trial, and this actually happened two days after the Marriott murders. Wolverton was acquitted, and the jury just uh, classified this as a justifiable homicide. There's also the story of Orson Spencer, Howard Orson Spencer, who was the son of Orson Spencer in Rush Valley, He was working in Rush Valley when he got into an altercation with some soldiers. One of them was Sergeant Ralph Pike and about 10 to 12 other soldiers. And there were heated words. And apparently the Sergeant Pike takes his gun out and whips Spencer on the head with it, dangerously fracturing Spencer's skull. So Spencer spends the summer recovering and Pike gets charged with, uh, I think it was assault with intent to kill. And so when Pike goes to Salt Lake City in August for his hearing, Spencer and other church members figure out that Pike is probably going to be acquitted. So when Pike was walking around Main Street, Spencer approaches him, pulls a pistol, and shoots him in broad daylight. And then he calmly walks away before anyone could react. And there were a lot of people present. Uh, There were a lot of witnesses, but somehow no one was willing to testify that they knew who uh, had done it. No one seemed to recognize him. 
nor were any uh, two descriptions of him the same, which is really interesting. Spencer was later tried and acquitted of Pike's murder, but, and this is interesting, by a majority of non-Mormon jurors. And then there's there's another story that Craig Foster brings up that I actually, this isn't really a polygamy story, but it kind of is because it affects Amos Musser. Now, Amos Musser is the father of Joseph Musser. Joseph Musser is basically the founder of Mormon fundamentalism. Amos Musser was the church historian. He was a prominent Latter-day Saint. And he was uh, writing some articles in the Salt Lake Herald going after an anti-polygamy group. There was an anti-polygamy society trying to fight for the morality of the of the women, which is so funny because not much has changed, right? There's still like Christians trying to rescue Mormons from Mormonism all the time. And it's always been that way. Well, there was an anti-polygamy society. Amos Musser decides to question the morality of one of the leading ladies in town, a Mrs. Bain. And so Mrs. Bain's son, Harry Bain, shows up one night to Musser's house, knocks on his door with a friend. And one of Musser's kids answers it. They say, hey, is your dad home? They go get Musser and they say, hey, we have a letter from you. And they hand, they go to hand him a letter and it said compliments of Mrs. Bain, who is the person Amos was writing about. And as Amos goes to grab the letter, Harry Bain takes him and starts horse whipping his face, basically beating him up with a whip. And then, of course, you know, Musser's wife and kids pull the guy off. He takes off down the street. He gets arrested. They're arrested. They uh, appear next week, the next week to post their bonds. And as they're leaving the courtroom, there's this adjoining room. And all of a sudden, the men are pushed into the room and the door is locked. And in walks Amos Musser with the same whip and just starts beating the crap out of this Bane guy until the police break in and pull them both off. When the cases finally come to court, they are equally dismissed. And Craig Foster notes that the Desert Evening News expressed regret that such an incident had to happen. However, the editorial went on to state, quote, at any rate, the clique to which Bane belongs cannot reasonably complain after opening the ball that one of them is compelled to dance to his own kind of music, end quote. Okay, just two more stories that I find interesting, and then I'll let you on your merry little way and tell our last hiatus. But uh, the story of Archibald N. Hill. Now, this is really interesting, too. Archibald N. Hill was a prominent Latter-day Saint. He had married several plural wives. And now there are two things you need to remember when you hear the story. Remember George A. Smith's defense um, earlier of Howard Egan, where he says, you know, common law, uh, mountain law suggests that you can take revenge um, for the seducer of your wife. And if you're not around, friends can do it. Remember that, and also remember the story of Parley P. Pratt, who had a similar story, and it was the reaction was very, very different. So now let's go to April 1866, and there's a freighter from Nevada who is doing business in Great Salt Lake City. His name is S. Newton Brassfield, and he uh, becomes acquainted with one of the plural wives of Archibald Hill. Her name was Mary Emma Hill, and the two, of course, strike up a relationship. I'm going to uh, tell you the story and then I'm going to tell you how the Mormons tell the story in the Millennial Star because I think it's kind of interesting. But um, basically, Archibald Hill is on a mission in Europe and so she is really unhappy. I don't know the nature of her conflict, but I know that she was very unhappy in her marriage. And so while, she, while he's gone, she meets Brassfield he um, says, well, get a divorce from your husband. Let's go to the judge and get a divorce. And 
she's like, there's no need. You know, they don't, you know, no one outside of this territory recognizes this as a marriage. Let's just get married and go. And so they find a non-Mormon judge, uh, Judge Solomon P. McCurdy, who was the Associate Justice of Utah. He was from Missouri and strongly anti-Mormon. And the fact that he's from Missouri plays into this. So he marries uh, the couple. He marries Mary Emma to Brassfield. He doesn't recognize the marriage. He doesn't care about it. And there was no attempt to secure a divorce. And so they go into Brassfield and Emma, Mary Emma, go in to get her stuff and to get her kids. And the police show up and they arrest Brassfield. I believe it, the, the charge was larceny. And, you know, he's stealing from Archibald Hill. He's stealing wife and kids and stuff. And it, this is so interesting because I've had some experiences with the modern day FLDS that is very, very similar. We had, you know, before the police were when the police were still working for the FLDS church, that's changed in the last four years. It's one of the very first things that I helped the town um, be involved with, with the, with the rally down in Short Creek against the police, because we had our, one of our contacts, Andrew Chatwin, he legally obtained a lease for the zoo property. Um, and he went to go open it, open the gates with the keys. He had the legal paperwork and the FLDS police showed up and arrested him for trespassing. And, you know, it sounds so wild to happen now, but that's exactly what was happening here. The police show up. The police were absolutely working under church protection. And so, you know, someone let them know that she was running away. And so they tried to stop him. So uh, he, Brassfield, is arrested and he's released after posting bail. And his wife is trying, his new wife, Mary Emma, is trying to get secure custody of her children. And as he is accompanied by a U.S. Marshal going into his hotel, he is fatally shot by an unknown assailant. There were never any witnesses or no clues to who had committed the crime, although, you know, people thought it was the friends of the absent husband. There was a $4,500 reward posted uh, for anyone who knew any evidence of who could have done this. But in spite of that, the killer was never identified or apprehended. Now, Listen to how the Millennial Star talks about this. This is the church's newspaper. And just the, the framing of it's really, really interesting, especially the accountability and responsibility portion. Great Salt Lake City, April 9th, 1866. There has been considerable excitement in the city for the past week in relation to the shooting of a man by the name of Squire N. Brassfield. It seems that Brassfield had made the acquaintance of the second wife of Archibald N. Hill, named Mary Emma. This intimacy continued until a marriage and a removal to Austin, Nevada, were proposed. Without taking any steps to obtain a divorce from Brother Hill, the parties were married by jo Judge Solomon McCurdy, one of our federal district judges, on the 27th of March. On the same day on which the ceremony was performed, Brassfield and the woman undertook to remove the goods and chattel from Brother Hill's residence, which he occupied, but were interrupted by the police. He drew his pistol and uttered some threats, and the police took him off to the calaboose and locked him up for the night. He was charged with larceny and also with an assault with intent to kill, and on both charges was released on bail. A writ of habeas corpus was issued by Judge McCurdy on the request of the woman to obtain possession of her children, her offspring, by her previous marriage. This case was argued before Judge McCurdy. Mr. Hempstead appeared for the petitioner and Judge Z. Snow as Deputy Attorney General for the Territory of Utah. 
On the evening of Monday the 2nd, Brassfield was returning from this examination in company with Captain Hosmer, United States Marshal, and as they were turning to go into the National Hotel east of the Godby store, some person stepped up to Brassfield and fired a gun or pistol and ran off, pursued and fired at by men who were around, but without being caught or even recognized. About 45 minutes after being shot, Brassfield died. Before his death, he remarked to a surgeon, stated in evidence at the coroner's inquest that, quote, had the judge done as I asked him, this would not have happened, end quote. The explanation of, of this remark as given now is that Brassfield wished McCurdy to obtain a divorce before the marriage, but that McCurdy told him there were no need of a divorce, but to go ahead as a woman's marriage to Hill would not stand. It is said, however, that McCurdy now disclaims all knowledge of the woman's being married and says that she deceived him. The fact is, I suppose, and I believe it can be proved, that at the time he perform performed the ceremony, he was so drunk that he scarcely knew what he was doing. Brassfield stated to a friend, a Gentile, that has transpired, this has transpired since his death, that they were intending to make the marriage a test case and that it was the entering of the wedge to burst up polygamy. Okay, so this is me for just a second saying one of the motives ascribed to it after the fact was that, you know, this guy was only stealing this plural wife so they could try to break down polygamy, make a test case that would go to the Supreme Court, which is a really interesting way to be an activist, uh, which I don't think is true. Back to the Millennial Star. Whether he, he was killed by some man with whom he had difficulty or on what ground he was shot has not yet been ascertained. As a matter of course, the miserable clique who have encouraged and, and urged forward Brassfield and others to encroach upon the citizens here and their rights have, through their organ, raised a howl about this act. They are disappointed and feel that they are beaten at their own game. And like desperate men, they are using every means in their power to make capital and create difficulty out of this occurrence. Yet they acknowledge that Mrs. Hill was the second wife of Brother Hill. As a community, we disclaim all knowledge of or complicity with the man who killed Brassfield. He may have been killed on account of some personal grudge, or he may have been shot by a friend of Hill's. In either case, it is a folly to accuse a whole community of and charge them with the deed, and had such an occurrence happened in any other community, nobody would have thought of doing such a thing. It has not surprised any person who is acquainted with the feelings and the views of the people here, however, that this invasion of Brother Hill's marital rights has terminated so suddenly. Men who have more wives than one hold their rights as sacred and estimate them as highly as those who do have but one. They are their wives, the mothers of their children, bound to them by the most holy and binding ties. The seducer who invades the sanctuary of home, whether there be but one wife or more, and endeavors by the use of insidious and devilish arts to lead away an inmate, must expect to have his career suddenly terminated. No man who possesses any of the feelings of manhood would quietly submit to the wrong of this kind while he had the power to resent it. End quote. And I'll link to that too. It's a fascinating tale of how the Mormons made sense of this, this kind of thing. And again, you know, I'm finding all of these murders. It's so fascinating, the justification. And again, when it happens on the other side, it's a whole different story. But Mormons definitely take this differently. The last revenge killing I want to talk about briefly, it's actually not the story of plural marriage so much, at, but it does talk about a Gentile marrying uh, a Mormon girl. And this Mormon girl was said to be, she was supposed to be married to another Mormon. So Robin, it's said that Robinson was, uh, he married 
the daughter of Elder John Kay, who it's so interesting because I was reading later articles on it and they called him an apostate. But I was reading Letters of His Death by the Millennial Star and by Warren St- Bishop Warren Snow, and they considered they called him Elder John Kay. They considered him a great man of the church. So Robinson married a Mormon girl. It said that she uh, was trying to leave the church because her and her mother were unhappy and didn't want to become plural wives to um, someone else. So, uh, John or Dr. King Robinson, he was a surgeon. He had trained in New York. He had done a lot of work for the army. He was a skilled surgeon, um, in some of the military forts. And he comes into town and realizes that there's a need there. There's a hot springs up in Utah. And the way that, uh, you had to obtain property was really through the church. Now, I'm just going to read an interesting part because I think that this is, this is relevant. There's this great article on Mapping Salt Lake uh, that I'm going to link to you by researcher Michael McLean, who does the Mapping Salt Lake City stories, and he talks about this. So I'm going to read his account because he does a really, really good job sort of contextualizing it. Uh, He talks about how these ideas of blood atonement, this idea that you can kill people for um, their sins is important. And apologists have said that you can't link this case to or any of these cases to blood atonement. But I think you can when you understand the spirit and function of how blood atonement works. Here's what McLean says. When the Mormons arrived in the Salt Lake Valley in 1847, the federal land system did not extend that far west. With no legislation to dictate ownership and distribution of lands, Brigham Young and his fellow church leaders created their own system. On July 25th, 1847, Young decreed, quote, No man should buy any land, but every man should have his land measured off to him for city and farming purposes that he could till. He might till as he pleased, but he should be industrious and take care of it, end quote. Now, remember when Joseph Smith was setting up Plots of Zion, it was like all perfectly squared. They had an agricultural like sort of wall around it for farming and then people had plots um, in the center. Brigham Young did his best with that. So he had these plots. Uh, This is what historian Ron Anderson explains. He says, quote, by August 27, by August 20th, 1847, the survey of Plot A was completed. It included 114 acre plots, 114 10 acre plots, each containing eight lots. Lots were 10 by 20 rods or 165 by 330 feet, one and a quarter acres in size. Each block alternated in the ways the lots were divided and the houses faced. Only one house was permitted on each lot and had to be 20 feet off the street. Streets were eight rods, which were 132 feet wide, and each applicant was assigned property by Heber C. Kimball and Thomas Bullock. Bullock maintained a record of the land distribution and a fee of $150 was paid for each lot acquired. Each person's receipt for the land became his deed for the purposes of maintaining his claim and the conveyance of the land in the future. Unmarried men were not given an allotment, but polygamists were entitled to receive one for each family, end quote. So this is an important part, too. Being a polygamist in Frontier, Utah, meant that it came with status. So you got more land the more wives you had. That's just the way it worked. And if you didn't have wives, you didn't get land at all in Salt Lake City. If there were any disputes, it went to the church authorities. So there was a spring up in Salt Lake City that was part of Platte Sea. It was called Warm Springs. And James Hendrick, who was both the presiding bishop of the 19th Ward and the caretaker of the bathhouse of the springs, sort of oversaw it. Now, when the government came in and tried to extend it, there was a little bit um, of debate. And you can read more about the Organic Act and, and things like that. But basically, Dr. Robinson decides he wants to build a hospital there. He puts in a petition to get the land. He wants the claim. He was going to use the hot springs to help his patients. And he he acquires um, 
a claim for it. And he actually even builds a little small shack on it. He starts to build a bowling alley as well. He had some plans for it. And of course, this causes a lot of problems. He's already married a Mormon woman, and now he's going to take over uh, land. And so I am going to read the what the Fort Douglas Museum archivist says about the death, and then I'm going to read to you how it's reported to the Mormons. Okay, on the night of October 22nd, 1866, there was a knock at the door and a young man told the doctor he was needed and to come right away. Grabbing his medical bag, he left his home never to return alive. Within blocks of his house, he was clubbed and shot to death. It has been said that the famous protector Porter Rockwell wanted the same piece of land, but no connection was ever been found between the doctor's death and Mr. Rockwell. His tombstone can be found in the Fort Douglas Cemetery, and it reads, In memory of Dr. J. King Robinson, who was assassinated October 22, 1866, age 50 years. Now, this is interesting. This is also inscribed. It says, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Now, according to historian Michael McLean, the man who knocked on Robinson's door had insisted that his brother, John Jones, was injured and needed immediate attention. No such person could, nor his brother could ever be found. The crime took place on a typically busy corner of the city near Main Street in 300 South. It was reported that between four and seven men assaulted him, though no witnesses could relay any identifying information, and there were no officers near the area at the time, as most of the force was either working at or attending a nearby circus that night. By the time he was discovered, Robinson was already unconscious. More time passes by Sanders tried to find policemen to aid them. Robinson succumbed to his wounds a couple hours later. As news of his murder spread, opinion was quickly split between the Mormon population, who believed it to be a crime of opportunity, while the Gentile population pointed to his having not been robbed of valuables on his person as proof that he had been murdered for his offending church officials. Subsequently, Mormons feared that Rob Robinson's murder would doubtless be used as an argument for the necessity of a larger military force being stationed in or near the city. Now, the case was never resolved, and this was not the first or last time that this would happen. Now, uh, Porter Rockwell was thought to be uh, involved because of he was a notorious bodyguard and destroying Angel for Brigham Young. He was said to run the Danites, and which we now know is a thing. And we have people like... Samuel D. Serene, who um, testified that, that Porter Rockwell uh, was part of these murders. So there are people that, that said that he was part of this. Of course, nobody could, no witnesses could be obtained uh, when, they, when they needed him. So now let's go back to the Mormon popular history of Utah. This account uh, is really interesting. It says, The Robinson murder. The excitement over the Brassfield homicide scarcely had time to die away before another killing took place. The date was the 22nd of October and the victim, Dr. J. King Robinson, a former assistant surgeon at Camp Douglas. Dr. Robinson had married a Utah girl, a daughter of Elder John Kay, and at the time of his death was practicing his profession at Salt Lake City. In this case of Brassfield, it was generally felt that there had been a serious provocation and that the Nevada freighter had done much to merit what had been fallen him. There was no such element of the palliation in the Robinson case. The bloody deed shocked and horrified the whole community. All classes united in deploring it and denouncing it its dastardly perpetrators. It's actually not true. The murder occurred a little before midnight. Summoned from his bed, ostensibly to care for a man with a broken limb, the surgeon was but a few rods from his residence. Where, Independence Hall, when he sat upon by several persons who, after striking him on the head with some sharp instrument, put a bullet through his brain and hastily fled, disappearing before anyone else could arrive upon the scene. The first corner saw a number of men running away, but darkness prevented recognition. Dr. Robinson, in a dying condition, was taken to his home where he expired an hour afterwards. Now, there's a footnote here. 
there are actually two, and I'm going to read them because they're really fascinating. Said that here's the here's a footnote. Said the Desert News quote: "There are acts which demand the expiation of blood, and this is one of them." The paper urged the officers to spare no efforts to bring the criminal or criminals to justice. President Young, in a public discourse, compared the murder of Dr. Robinson to the massacre at Hans Mill, the assassination of Joseph and Hiram Smith, and the Mountain Meadows Massacre. He denounced it in unmeasured terms. Now, what's interesting about that is that was the public view. Now, this was happening in the 60s, um, 1860s, almost a decade after Mountain Meadows. And the church had already aroused suspicion. There were, um, the government was starting to go like, these Mormons are violent. You can't come in. And, you know, I was looking up other cases. Uh, there are some interesting stories and really hard to verify that, that we're making it around to New York. Like one was a story of a Spanish trader that, that Brigham Young uh, met along the trail as they were coming to the valley. The man didn't uh, give Brigham Young the deference that was due. And uh, Brigham Young accused him of being a spy for the government, put him in jail, and the man basically died, uh, was murdered. There, there are several stories about this that we can't really trace. So who knows how they're true. Brigham Young was said to have said, vengeance is mine and I have taken a little. And so for him to publicly denounce this is interesting. They knew that it would bring on federal pressure. And, you know, historian Connell O'Donovan, I think I've talked about this before, but he links the lynching of black Utah Thomas Coleman, who was brought here as probably a slave and servant for Brigham Young and Brigham Young's nephew, Farrell Moore's Little, who ran the hotel at the time and was later the Salt Lake mayor. Uh, Thomas Coleman worked in their homes and as a servant, he would have been in and out, sort of invisible in the background and might have heard a lot uh, about the Dr. Robinson case. Connell believes that that is why he was lynched. Um, He believes that Porter Rockwell was responsible because there was a grave already dug for Thomas Coleman when he was blood atoned. They found his naked body on the top of Arsenal Hill, which is now by where the DUP Daughters Utah Pioneer Museum is. And he had the garment markings carved into his skin and uh, his throat was slashed in good old blood atonement style. And there was a note pinned to the skin on his chest that said, a note to all N-words, stay away from white women. And they blamed his murder on you know, everyone's like, oh, he was talking to white women, so he deserved this. But actually, black men on the frontier knew better than than to talk to white women. They knew that their deaths would often be blamed for this sort of thing, and they were. And uh, regardless, I mean, even if Thomas Coleman had approached or fallen in love with a white woman, it wouldn't justify this at all. It's absolutely racist and horrible. But there's no doubt in my mind that he did. Uh, died for another reason. And Connell's theory is that he knew too much about Dr. Robinson's case. So yeah, I think that there are so many interesting intersections that are happening with this story. And that's why I wanted to tell it because these idea of revenge murders sort of shows the moral center point of uh, the anxiety and morality of Mormons at the time. And I think that we see echoes of that now. If you go against our social norms, then it's a grievous sin. But if it goes the other way, then not so much. As we see with Parley P. Pratt, who he considered himself married to, you know, Eleanor McLean. And so it was justified. He was a moral man. He was doing a righteous deed. And yet when we have other men who are doing these things like, you know, Brassfield or James Monroe, it's seen as adultery. And it's just really interesting how this happens. So if anyone else has a stories of mountain law, a mountain common law or uh, revenge killings, particularly ones that involve plural wives, I'd love you to send them to me. Put them in the comment section. Of course, revenge killings happen on the frontier. I don't know many how many times I have to say it. It was not specific to Mormons, but as you can see, Mormons had their own way of doing things, as George A. so eloquently put in his uh, defense of 
Howard Egan. And I would encourage you to go down the rabbit hole of looking at these. It's fascinating. It teaches us a lot about law. It teaches us a lot about religious freedom arguments that are happening now, a lot about the way that that we look at women and possession and patriarchy and how polygamy factors into all of that and Mormon identity and Mormon in-group thinking and, you know, some of the stuff I talked about earlier, this idea of insiders and outsiders. And, you know, I'm going to come back. I plan to do at least 200 episodes. I just don't know the pace. Like I said, I'm working two jobs now. It's it's hard. It's hard being out on my own, being a single mom. But I'm lucky because I have a supportive co-parent just down the street. And so don't want to complain too much. But yeah, it does make it difficult. But I'm still around. I'm not off the airways. You can find me at the Sunstone Mormon History Podcast, where Brian Buchanan and I are doing the same thing that we're doing with this history. We're just telling the history of Mormonism. It's really well produced. Uh, We spend a lot of time on it. So we put one out every other week. And I think we have like 17 episodes right now. So if you're missing it and you want to get your fix, go to sunstone.org and find us on the Sunstone Mormon History Podcast. We're on iTunes and Spotify as well. And again, I apologize for getting so emotional. Literally, this is the second time I've recorded it. Things are just raw. I'm very vulnerable. I'm kind of a mess. Uh, That's why I haven't got on here and talked as much. It's probably not a safe place to put all my stuff out there publicly. So if you are one of those people that's a critic or hate following me because I do have those, you know, it's hard to, to talk about these things in Utah as a Mormon in the Mormon community without, you know, acquiring some enemies. So if you're one of those and you've been waiting for me to fail, well, good news. Karma has really kicked my but this last two years. So feel happy about that. Uh, I've definitely got my just desserts, but maybe not as bad as it used to be, right? Uh, vengeance um, should be nobody's and we shouldn't seek uh, the harm or hurting of anyone, but it's kind of a Mormon tradition. So it's it's who we are. All right. Thank you, dear listeners. Thank you for being so loyal and kind and generous uh, to me and to this podcast and to the guests on it. Again, I would just like to leave you with that, that the history is fascinating. It can be a good teacher to us if we let it. And um, we should always have compassion and accountability. And we should hold ourselves and always ask ourselves uh, the same things that we are asking other people to do. And that goes for um, understanding and judgment. And yeah, I think these stories tell us a lot about sort of the limitations of loyalty and possession and, and identity. And hopefully you can learn the same lessons. So until I talk to you again, I hope I've left you with the dulcet tones of the murderous landscape of Mormon Utah and, uh, Maybe we'll talk about something uh, more calm next time, but I doubt it. I've got some really good stories up my sleeve. Some wild stuff in the interim as I've been researching. I've learned a lot. There's a lot I've learned about polygamy. I'm sure you've learned a lot about it too. And uh, maybe we'll keep learning them together um, until we give this this podcast a good old-fashioned burial and wait for it in the resurrection. So, yeah, uh, good to talk to you all again, and hopefully we'll talk soon. The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Dows. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening.